You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hello? Hey. So I just got off the phone with Jody and Kim. That guy that came forward with the tip, he thinks Marcel's in Toronto. Apparently, he listened to our podcast, and there's a guy who came into his work. He fits the profile. And he's traveling with another younger man who he's claiming is his son. Oh my God. Okay. This actually might be our chance to freaking get him. March Vautour is the 1%. He made his fortune in oil and cryptocurrency. He's handsome, charming, and has a heart of gold. It's hard to believe he's still single. Only it isn't, because March isn't real. He's a serial grifter and romance con artist who's tricked women and men across Canada, the U.S., Vietnam, and the Czech Republic out of over a million dollars. And that's just what we know of. His trail of destruction has led to heartbreak, bankruptcies, foreclosures, and even PTSD. So he never took his mask off, um... Anytime we were interacting inside, he wore a bucket hat and a surgical mask. My name is Amelia King. And I'm Maggie Reed. And you're listening to our four-episode update to season one of Catch Him If You Can. In the last episode, you heard the story of Kyra, a single mom in her 20s struggling to gain custody of her son. She trusted Marcel let him into her home, and he got away with her money, her car, and her hope for getting her son back. You also heard that Marcel isn't selling the rich oil tycoon story anymore. He's claiming to be homeless and traveling with an accomplice who he says is his son. Marcel is in the wind again, maybe heading east, but maybe not. Just when we're starting to think the trail has dried up, we hear from a listener. I remember very distinctly driving back into Toronto after a trip and hearing that last episode. I was convinced that I was making it up in my mind. What are the chances of this protagonist of this show that I'm listening to ends up on my doorstep? For reasons that will soon become clear, I'm going to let Maggie tell you what happened next. Chapter 9. Contact. It's early June 2022. We've just released the final episode of season one of this podcast. At this point, Amelia and I are in the trenches of early motherhood, the fourth trimester, they call it. We had our babies nine days apart, just as the first episode of season one was dropping. Let me say that releasing an investigative podcast while extremely pregnant and newly postpartum was a lot. Kind of insane when we reflect on it now. We were still working during this time because we own our own business, so it's just us. But we slowed down a bit, hired help for the early days. One evening, when I was struggling to put my baby to sleep, I get a text from Andrea in our group chat. And emails come in through the Stop the March Madness website. It's a live tip from a listener, just like you. I just came across it in my suggestion list because I'm a big fan of true crime and started listening and was very interested right off the bat. This listener we're going to call James in our story. It's not his real name, 
and we've altered his voice to protect his identity. I remember very distinctly driving back into Toronto after a trip and hearing that last episode, and I was excited because I I was always excited when a new episode came out, but in this one, it was there was a recording of his voice featured on it. James is talking about Fan and Andre's secret recording of Marcel from episode six. Before his vacation ends, he hears that final episode. The last episode, the update was that he had conned someone in the West Coast and was potentially coming to the East. James returns to work when he gets back to Toronto. He works at a drop-in center for the homeless in the west end of the city. And it wasn't too long after I got back that I saw somebody coming to my place of work that I initially thought was March. I spoke to this gentleman, and the story that he told me was was heartbreaking. He was claiming to be homeless and traveling with another man. That he was saying was his son that he had just reunited with after, you know, a lifetime of being apart, that they were just reuniting, reconnecting. Uh, they told uh, me that they had come from the West Coast. Their car had broken down somewhere along the prairies, and they took a bus here to, to do work, honest construction work. The father-son duo went by the names Jay and Terry. James, of course, had his suspicions. When I first saw him and and heard his voice, I was convinced that I was making it up in my mind. I'm, you know, like, surely this is just a coincidence. What are the chances of this protagonist of this show that I'm listening to ends up on my doorstep. I think maybe even a little bit of denial. I was like, there's no way. But James is on higher alert now, and he pays close attention to Jay's behavior. So he never took his mask off. Anytime we were interacting inside, he wore a bucket hat and a surgical mask. This made it really hard for James to positively ID him. He also noticed some other peculiar behavior unusual for other people to be like, hey, can you keep an eye on my bag? Or can I keep this bag in your office, you know, while I go do something? But with him, that was another, I mean, that was just one of many giveaways was that he would never be without the bag on his, like physically holding it or right by his feet. And if he ever did have to go into like the bathroom or anything, he would bring the bag with him. And uh, occasionally he would let Terry keep watch of the bag, but it was just inseparable from him for the most part. From past stories, we know that Marcel often has fake IDs, different SIM cards, and sometimes stolen goods in his bag. I did notice that when we would talk, he really liked to put down other people. Like he would make fun of people in a way that was just kind of gross and unnecessary, you know, like making fun of how someone looked or talked or smelled, things that are often beyond their control. There's more. When he was coming out after having changed, and he had a, he always covered, he always had a tensor bandage on his leg and arm. He would wear shorts right where the tattoos are of March. And I remember he was, he, he was changing, and it made no sense to like keep the, it would have been so easy to just remove the bandage, but he did everything he could to not remove the bandage. He finally had to take it off, and I saw a tattoo on his leg. Quick second, it was just a quick second. Marcel has a hollow maple leaf tattoo on the back of his leg. And even though Jay was so diligent with his mask, James caught brief glimpses of his face when he went out for smokes. 
those glimpses in the tattoo sighting brought him to the Stop the March Madness website to match up what he'd seen with the pictures on the site. I definitely leaned heavily on the website. It was helpful in terms of the actual like details of the tattoos, how he looks, because he, uh, again, always wore a bucket hat. He was very, very aware of not showing his arms, of kind of hanging out in the background. James is starting to feel nervous and very on edge around this man. He's always been a fan of true crime, but never expected to become an investigator in one of these stories. I felt very alone in this, so I did bring in a, a co-worker and asked, am I crazy? Here's the information I have. And my co-worker was kind enough to assure me that, oh no, this is the same person. This is when he makes contact with the ladies. I went to the website and reached out to them and emailed and said, listen, I, I live and work in a certain neighborhood in the city that uh, uh, March is coming in every day and accessing our services. James has a long talk with Jody. She thinks it's him. It's late in the evening Toronto time, but I jump on the phone with Kim and Jody in BC to find out more about the tip. Then I call Amelia to fill her in. Hello? Hey. So I just got off the phone with Jody and Kim. That guy that came forward with the tip, he thinks Marcel's in Toronto. Apparently, he listened to our podcast, and there's a guy who came into his work at a drop-in center, and he said he sounds just like March. He fits the profile, and he's traveling with another younger man who he's claiming is his son. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. What? Yeah. How long has he been there? Do you know? So apparently for a few days, I think maybe like four or five days, he's been going to this drop-in center every day at the same time, every day. Oh my God. Okay. We we need to strategize. Like this this actually might be our chance to freaking get him. I know. We could I get know. him. I know. Okay. So this drop-in center, it's in the West End. This is actually like very close to my house. Should I, should I go and see if it's him? Like, do we... Do we think that's safe? Oh, um, I, okay. Okay, I, you know what? I think if if we can be stealthy enough, you know what I mean? Like if he doesn't know that it's you, then maybe mm -hmm. we could just friggin' do it. Maybe we should just do it. I think maybe you could do it. Do you think you could do it? I think so. I think I could be stealthy. Jody puts us in touch with James to find out more about Marcel's comings and goings. We find out that he goes into the drop-in center at the same time every day usually around 9 a.m. He showers, charges his devices, goes for several smoke breaks, eats, and guards his bag like a hawk, of course. This place is very close to where I live, and I want to go and see for myself. I should note that at this point, my baby is two and a half months old. I'm breastfeeding around the clock, sleeping very little as I tend to my son's every need and figure out motherhood. I've been in a bit of a bubble, so the chance to go identify the con man we've been chasing for two years felt incredibly dangerous, ill-advised, and also pretty exciting. I talk it over with my partner. He's nervous, and so am I. We decide that I should keep my distance. I'll try to catch him smoking outside of the drop-in center, snap a picture or two to confirm it's him. What could go wrong? The next day, I put my baby down for a nap around nine, really hoping he sleeps. I should note, he mostly sleeps on me at this point, and most times when I put him down in his bassinet alone, he sleeps for about 12 minutes. My partner is home, but working, so I'm really on the clock here. 
I get in my car and drive the short distance to the center and park my car out front. Okay, so I'm right outside. Marcel Andre Pator is inside. We've been given a tip by someone who works there that he's inside. He's working with an accomplice. He's been going there every single day for the last about week. And I'm just basically waiting in my car, seeing if I can get sight of him coming out. Apparently he's in the shower right now and the accomplice he's working with, Pinky, is guarding his bag. His bag, to be sure, has a number of different IDs, and probably stolen goods, and so I'm just waiting here, trying to be stealthy. I'm texting with James. Marcel hasn't been out for a smoke for a while now, so he should be coming out soon. I start to get antsy. I get out of my car and walk past the center. There's a lot going on outside. People smoking, small groups chatting, volunteers, food deliveries. It's a bit chaotic. I cross the street and pop into a coffee shop. I peek out the window and ask for an update from James. He tells me Marcel's out of the shower, but is sitting in the back now, getting some food. He isn't coming out for a smoke. James and I are both on edge. I I always felt a little bit nervous around him, especially... You know, I think he's probably a pretty smart person and maybe could have even picked up on how I was behaving. Like, I I didn't interact with him much, but that day in specific, my nerves were really heightened. I don't really know what to do at this point. I don't want to leave. Any day could be the last day he comes in here, and I don't exactly have a lot of opportunities to stake this place out. Impulsively and irrationally, I decide to enter the drop-in center asking to use their bathroom. An employee tells me I can go in, hands me a mask, and directs me to the woman's washroom. I walk in and instantly feel a pit in my stomach. This place is empty. There are less than 10 people inside. Everyone inside is homeless. A few people are sleeping on benches. There's a large projector and screen in the middle of the room. And I'm wearing a matching gray sweatsuit and sticking out like a sore thumb. I catch a glimpse of two men, one in a bucket hat at the back of the room as I beeline to the bathroom. When I get to the bathroom, I feel panicked. I couldn't get a good look at his face, but how can I do this without being seen? I also start thinking, has Marcel listened to the podcast? Does he know who we are? Surely he's Googled us. Then I remember the large screen in the middle of the room. I can use this. I wash my hands for no reason and exit the bathroom, making my way to the other side of that screen. I position myself so my body is covered by the screen and I pretend to be watching what was playing on it. From this vantage point, I'm able to peek out. I look to the back of the room and I see the man in the bucket hat with his mask pulled down. It's Marcel. I know this instantly with every fiber of my being. He doesn't see me. I make my way out of the drop-in center and get in my car. Immediately, I call Amelia, who's at home with her baby girl. It's him, Amelia. Oh my God, I saw his fucking face. I'm shaking. Like, what do we do? I don't even know what to do. Oh my God, it's him? Did he see you? I don't think so. I don't think he recognized me. I was wearing a mask. I tried to be very inconspicuous, but like, oh my fucking God. Oh my God, okay. Okay, so I'm gonna call the Toronto police. I'm gonna see if they could do something. I, I, I can't even. This is like honestly, Maggie. This is freaking insane. It's him. It's him. It's him. 
Okay, you're gonna call the police? I'm gonna call them right now. Just, okay, give me a few minutes, okay? Okay. I'll call you right back. Okay, call me back. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. While I wait for Amelia to talk to Toronto police, I turn on my car and start driving home. I check my baby monitor and somehow my son is still sleeping. Update, I'm back home. Um, I I went in and I saw him. I saw him. Uh, And I did all of this during my baby's nap. Did you sleep for an hour and a half so mommy could go on a sting? Did you? Did you do that? Did you do that? Did you do that? He did. He did. He slept the whole time. I'm not exaggerating when I say my son has never napped this long in his life. I guess he just knew. I feel almost high. I'm still very freshly postpartum. I've spent very little time away from my baby, been in the trenches of early motherhood, and this kind of jolts me out of a fog. Soon after, I hear back from Amelia. Hello? Hey. Okay, so oh, what did, they, what did they say? Oh, that's, that's not no. a good tie. <laughs> no. Oh my God, Maggie. It's the same friggin' story, okay? So so they, I called them and I'm like, okay, this is the deal. We've got him. He's this friggin' con man. He's been conning people across Canada. News articles, yada, yada. And they basically said they can't search him without just cause, okay? Because that would be a violation of his rights. And if they find anything, because I told them, I'm like, he probably has those credit cards and his bag and SIM cards and all that kind of stuff. And they said they wouldn't be able to do anything with it because then it would be, quote, like improperly obtained. I'm like, well, we have just cause, right? We know it's him. And they claim that they, that's not enough. But he has he has open warrants for his arrest. No, does that no, not matter? They told me that they're not in Ontario. So that doesn't even give them just cause for Ontario. Oh, my God. So it's just the same thing. Yeah, it's it's the same we ha- we ha- thing. We have him. We know where he is, and they're not going to do anything. You literally saw his face. <laughs> they're not going to do anything. All right, we, I, I guess we should have a call with the ladies and, and see yeah. what we should do. We phone the ladies. They talk about confronting Marcel. He's literally in our backyard. He doesn't know we're on to him. It could be a very powerful and cathartic moment, but we have to tread very carefully here. The risk, of course, is if we do that, he bails. He's in the wind again, and we don't know when we'll find him. Just like when Jody confronted him in Nanaimo in 2019, or worse, he does something erratic. We resist the urge to reveal ourselves. We decide that we want him to think he's safe, that no one's the wiser, that he can continue on doing his thing. We ask James to keep us apprised of Marcel's wheelings and dealings so we can keep track of his movement. We hear some updates. He came in every single day for a good six weeks and it was always the same. He would come in with um, that other man that he said was his son and uh, was charming and nice to staff. He would remember all of our names, you know. We tend to sometimes get people that are in difficult situations and it means that sometimes people can be in bad moods and be hard. And so he was the opposite. He was very pleasant. He was very pleasant to work with. Marcel was also very persistent on getting into a shelter. He was claiming to be homeless. He was claiming to be living in a tent out in the boat somewhere in High Park. And so he wanted us to get him a shelter. We would spend hours on the phone on his behalf and Eventually, what happened was, you know, he was also saying, like, he would also be informed us that he was going to do these under-the-table construction jobs, and he was working in the afternoons. He'd come here and see us in the mornings or whatever, and then 
in the afternoons he'd go out and look for work. Uh, so there is a shelter program in the city that is specifically, they save beds just for guys who are working. And a colleague thought, oh, this would be a perfect program for this guy. It's a hard program to get into because it's a good shelter of, you know, in terms of how shelters can be. And so my colleague got him into that program. Uh, so he went off there. James is in a tight spot. I asked him how it felt to have to do his job for someone like Marcel. It felt totally awful. It, it really was disturbing for me and confusing. Not because I, I felt nothing about like him, but it was like no one, there's no crash course in like how to deal with an active con man. So Marcel and Pinky have left for the men's shelter and stopped visiting the drop-in center. In the meantime, the ladies start working a different angle. Without the cops on our side, the best we can do is try to keep track of his movements and mobilize the police in the other provinces. Jody is fired up again about her case. We know where Marcel is, at least for now. Could this be the motivation the Crown needs to actually prosecute her case? Remember, Jody is pursuing fraud and forgery charges against Marcel in British Columbia for the $49,000 she lost in 2018. She starts following up on the status of her case relentlessly. Meanwhile, Andrea reaches out to the police in Quebec. She thinks they might be able to act on the open warrant there for Marjolaine's case, the working-class woman from Drummondville, who Marcel frauded for over $80,000. And then, an update happens in Jody's case that leaves all of us just devastated. Her pushing finally leads to a response, but it's not the one we were hoping for and expecting at this point. The BC Crown rejects all of the charges against Marcel in her case. And after desperately trying to speak to the Crown directly to get some semblance of an understanding, she gets a five-minute call. Sorry, I'm just, trying, I'm just trying to understand why my charges didn't go through. Well, it's a, uh, uh, the charge assessment decision is twofold. There's the first part, if there's a substantial likelihood of conviction. The second part, if it's in the public interest to proceed. Okay. And, uh, you know, in, in my assessment of the case, there's some shortcomings in terms of the evidence necessary to successfully prosecute it in the criminal court. Jody asks him to elaborate on the, quote, evidence shortcomings. If you remember, she has sworn testimony of forgery from Marcel's former colleague. She has cell phone records, text messages. Here's what he had to say. When I talk about proof, it's not just in terms of, you know, what you know happened because of your experience. It's, you know, getting the necessary witness and the necessary you know, witnesses and necessary records to uh, present that evidence in court. Jody pushes him further. So there's no possible way of getting her to court to say, yes, that looks like my signature but it's, and my company, but it's not. And he only worked for me for two months back in 2015. Well, well Jody, I'm not, I'm not going to get into a, you know, a detailed you know, b- breakdown, but, but to prove uh, you know, the allegations against Mr. Vantour, uh, you know, would 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 not be a, a insignificant matter in, ter- in terms of the resources that would have to, you know, be expended, uh, further work that would have to be done, uh, you know, time, court time, and, and so forth, bringing people from different provinces. Uh, and so, 
uh, you know, it's 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 uh, not as uh, simple as uh, as straightforward as uh, you know. Sometimes it, you know we're led to believe just through, for example, the media. But the bottom line is he he intentionally falsified a check to pay me back. He willingly, knowingly falsified a check. Like I just don't understand why that can't be given a charge even if it's just the check itself like and even that's what the detectives they kept saying this is even worthy of a canada-wide warrant like to go from being like hopeful of a canada-wide warrant to just getting nothing it just i i just don't understand you know the police may may think well you know we've got enough you know, when sometimes they may be correct, sometimes they they may not be. In terms of you know investigations and you know and prosecutions, uh, they they can be uh, more time consuming and more resource uh, heavy than at first blush. For example, uh, you know we have uh, just because of you know popular culture and you see stuff in the media, TV shows, and movies, we sort of have a tendency to think that uh, uh, you know things can be done in five minutes. We can just hand a document. I have to quickly note how condescending the Crown Attorney is being here. In a way, he's right. The media does sometimes portray justice as swift and bereft of bureaucracy. But Jody has been battling the criminal justice system for over four years, trying to gather evidence in her own case and get the police on her side. She knows it's not simple or quick. She wants to know that there is recourse in the system for what happened in her case. In my opinion, that's not unreasonable. The Crown then goes on to talk about the matter of the, quote, public interest and how that factored into his decision. I'm very sympathetic to what happened to you, and I don't doubt this is, you know, you know what he did. Um, uh, but, you know, in my view, uh, uh, the prosecution of this matter uh, is not in the public interest. So even though he's been doing this for 27 years and does this all across Canada, it's not, you don't feel that it's, in any way protecting the public by by giving well, I can't, the heart chronic I can't, I, can't, I can't comment on, you know, what's going on in other provinces and I you know, you know, I you know, I don't know. I mean maybe uh, there's a strong case against them in Quebec. Maybe not. I you know, I don't know. You know, I you know, I'll view things uh, individually. Individually. I have to flag the Crown's use of this word. This seems to be one of the biggest problems with serial fraud. One case might not seem to be worth public resources to prosecute and not be deemed in the public interest. But when you see the pattern and the cases stacked together, how can this not be in the public interest? Another thing is, the decision-making feels very subjective. If you remember, in Lisa Bittencourt's case from over 20 years ago, Marcel stole 27000 from her. And she's the only victim we know of who got her money back through the criminal courts. The Crown did decide it was in the public interest to prosecute Lisa's case. They obtained a Canada-wide warrant in BC, and it was for less money than Jody, 27000 to Jody's 49000 And while Marcel had a criminal record at that point, he didn't have the sea of alleged victims we know of today. Here's Lisa speaking to that. They decided on my behalf that it was going to be Canada-wide. I, I didn't know anything about BC warrants versus Canada-wide, but they felt quite compelled with my story. But I do remember they asked me explicitly, have you been in any romantic 
relationship with Marcel. And I said no. And that was a big question that they put a lot of importance to. And I don't know if that makes a difference, unfortunately. There's also a huge stigma associated to victims of this crime. It's often treated as he said, she said, or presumed to be a jilted ex-lover situation. We don't know that these were motivating factors for this Crown attorney. It could very well be a resource issue, as he seems to suggest. Either way, this doesn't sit right. Here are Kim and Jody reflecting on the misogyny they felt in their experiences with the legal system. They've put the responsibility on us and thinking that we'll just back down, that, you know, we're just probably a bunch of weak women that were taken advantage of, so we'll just go away. You know, we weren't duped. We were conned because he's a professional con artist. You know, it, and it, it should not take away from who we are as individuals because it happened to us. We are all independent, strong, intelligent women who don't need men to, you know, support us. We all support ourselves. The Crown tells Jody she can send her case to another Crown attorney and see if they decide differently. But Jody's feeling pretty crushed by the news. She's been working for years only to finally hear that her case isn't in the public interest. And it's precisely because charges were not pursued in her case that another BC resident, single mom Kyra, got taken by Marcel. How can this sit right with the Crown? How is this not in the public interest of BC citizens? In the meantime, after this news, Andrea is more motivated than ever to put pressure on the Quebec police as we try to keep track of Marcel's whereabouts. We know from what James told us that he's in a men's shelter near Fort York, but we don't know how long he'll stay there. So I've been just communicating with the Quebec police here and there. Um, I, you know, I kept my con- con- uh, contact with Marjolaine uh, over this time. I was really communicating with them, sending them information, pictures and stuff like that. And here and there, they'd send pictures is this him? No. And, uh, you know, I had asked if they would extend the warrant or collaborate with Toronto, and um, they were trying to do that. In the meantime, we try to keep track of Marcel's whereabouts. James is in touch with Marcel after he leaves the drop-in center. The last thing I heard from March is that he was, so he was in this shelter for men that work, and he had called us to ask if we could write a letter uh, kind of vouching that he was indeed homeless, which we couldn't. We had no idea. Like, there are people we know are homeless because we see where they live. He was trying to secure subsidized housing through the government of Ontario. And he needed this letter because he was applying to a program that would basically, from what I understand, cover 50 to 75% of his rent for eight years, um, up to you know, I think $3,000 a month. While James wanted to continue keeping tabs on Marcel, he couldn't in good conscience do this. When I found that out, I told my other colleagues that we cannot write this letter for him. I couldn't take it anymore. And I explained to them who he was. And uh, we had a, you know, a talk. (laughs) Yeah, because I didn't want to contribute in any way to him accessing this a service that is really meant for the most vulnerable, you know, people. James has helped us a lot at this point. I asked him why he risked so much, including his job, to help us. I absolutely felt a moral obligation, unquestionable, 
I felt compelled to come forward after hearing on the podcast the stories of the victims. I, I was willing to risk certain things and deal with the fallout if it meant I could have any sort of hand in leading to stopping him. The case goes cold for a couple of weeks when James loses contact after refusing to write him the letter. We don't know where Marcel is. Andrea eventually hears from Toronto police, saying they went to the men's shelter, his last known location, near Fort York in Toronto. You know, the one time they went and they asked for March, but it wasn't him, uh, or Marcel, uh, and it wasn't him, the Toronto police did. So I thought they were going to give up. So I had sent them a message saying, you know, we are, uh, you know, having a difficult time now because the uh, BC charges from the Crown were not, uh, they did not give us the warrant and, it, and uh, you know, we're really down and we need some good news. Are you guys still working on it? You know, months go by and we don't hear anything. At one point, the police think they found him. But when they sent a picture, it turned out to be someone else. Then, on an unsuspecting day in early October 2022, we wake up to an urgent phone call from Andrea. This morning, I got the message, he's been arrested, and he'll be going in front of the judge here in Drummondville, Quebec this morning. Wow. Amazing. We got him! So, on the next episode of Catch Him If You Can, we get word from Drummondville Police. March is in cuffs. I'm concerned that he'll be released on bail and we'll never see him again. He said that he wants to go to rehab and get clean for his kids so he can be a good father. Whatever. Fucking bullshit. Come on now. Jody told me that. He was supposed to be in rehab, but forget it. The rehab is in Vietnam now. She said Donald would not forget his tattoos and he wouldn't forget his face because he stole from him. We need a visual. We need to get a photo. Catch Him If You Can is created and produced by Pink Moon Studio in partnership with Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and reported by me, Amelia King, and Maggie Reed. Evan King is our editor. Hannah Willis is our associate producer. Ryan Clark is our sound designer. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubran is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our business and development manager. And Jordan Heath Rawlings is our executive producer. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Catch and Pod. <laughs>